pray with me. Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning and bring glory to your name as we have sought to do in our giving, in our singing, in the reading of your word, in prayer. And now as we come to your word, I pray that you would teach us from your word. I pray that you would cause our hearts and minds to be lifted up with words and thoughts and prayers of praise to you who are our great God, to you alone who is worthy of our worship. I pray as well as I bring these words from your word that you would allow the words of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would take these words and bring them to bear on the hearts of each individual. May my words not detract, but be helped by your spirit as we seek to look at your text, at this text together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity now to open your word. Please speak to us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's certainly a privilege to be here with the folks of Grace Community Bible Church. The last time I was with you um, was in your old building. And uh, so it's a blessing to be here and to see how the Lord is indeed blessing this body of believers. I um, bring you greetings from our, our church, Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, where I serve. I'm also uh, privileged to be able to serve as a professor at Central Baptist Seminary, and I've had a few of, a few of my former students, they're not here, they're at the men's retreat, <laughs> but uh, both Bobby and uh, Jeff, and so I was glad to be able to, uh, am I missing anybody else who might be there? I don't know. Anyway, it's a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning. These songs, we love to sing them. We appreciate them because they remind us of Christmas celebrations with family and friends, Christmas Eve services, and particularly the birth of our Savior. And these hymns call us to do the one main thing that God created us to do, to worship Him. Now, one hymn I did not mention is, O Come All Ye Faithful, which makes the appeal to worship most directly. Three times in the refrain, we tell each other, O come, let us adore Him. And as we come to Psalm 8 here this morning, this is precisely what I believe David is calling us, us hearers of this psalm to do, to adore Him. And this psalm finds itself here right at the beginning of the Psalter, and Psalms 1 and 2 have already introduced, the, I think the, they really stand as the introduction to the whole book. Of, of Psalms, the whole 150 Psalms. And David has been writing, we can see he's ascribed the authorship of all the Psalms from 3 through 8, actually even beyond that. But I, I believe Psalms 3 through 7 go back to the superscription that we see in, in Psalm 3, that David is writing those Psalms when he's fled from Absalom his son. And all five of the Psalms, Psalms 3 through 7, are, are prayers of David asking 
he's giving prayers of deliverance, asking God to help him as he's lamenting this awful situation that he's found himself in. And it culminates in verse 17 of Psalm 7, where he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 8 then tells us about this God of righteousness that is mentioned here, the God to whom these prayers for deliverance have been made. And this psalm is a direct address to God. It's the only such hymn in the whole Psalter, interestingly. This, this psalm is a creation hymn. I think it's a poetic response to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. I'd like to read the psalm, and then we'll consider it together. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, we see in this superscription of this psalm that this getith here is likely a reference to an instrument giving a joyous sound and indicates that the psalm here is a joyous melody, a joy-filled song response, a joy-filled call to every believer. And it is this. Follower of God, you must worship the Creator. In writing this psalm the way that David has, I believe he is saying, O come, let us adore Him. Now what does the adoration and worship of God include? And what causes that worship to well up in David's heart? I think it's because he's awestruck by God. In particular, he's awestruck by three elements of God's character. And these are the elements that are right here for us in the psalm that I want us to consider as we walk through this psalm together. These elements are God's majesty, His power, and His grace. Our worship of God could certainly include many more attributes than these. But this psalm bids us to consider these three in particular. We are called to worship God for His majesty, His power, and His grace. So let's consider the first of these. We need to, our worship should acknowledge God's majesty. Notice the inclusion here uh, and the duplication, really, of this statement at the beginning of verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he ends the psalm with the same phrase, exactly the same phrase. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's really tough to miss the main point of the psalm, isn't it? That is the main point. And there are two ways, I think, that we can acknowledge God's majesty as we consider this concept here in in the psalm. First of all, in how we address Him. And secondly, in how we describe Him. 
So how do we address him? Well, we can see at the beginning of the psalm that we address him, Lord, our Lord. Now, there are at least three major Hebrew words for God. And I believe I have a slide here for you to walk through. It's helpful for us to understand in our English Bibles what these three words for God are that we would find in our Bibles. Two of these are used right here in this verse. O Lord, our Lord. You'll notice that the first word, Lord, is all caps. And this is a reference to Yahweh, sometimes called Jehovah. It is always in caps in our Bibles, in our English Bibles. Usually, Lord, sometimes God, but they're all caps. And this is his covenant-keeping name. This is the name that God used as he described himself to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. The second of these terms that we see here is Lord with a small O-R-D. And this is referring to the Hebrew word Adonai. Usually translated as Lord, it's a title that carries the idea of ruler or master or captain or king or sovereign. In fact, this is the word that Joshua uses in chapter 3 of, of, this bo- of, of his book in, uh, when he describes the, uh, well, I'll just read, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So as he's describing this ark of the Lord of all the earth, that word there is Adonai. A third common Hebrew word, we're going to find down in verse 5. And uh, I'm reading, I've been reading from the ESV here. I think probably many of you have a New American Standard, but, or ESV, either one. But the word is actually, it's actually translated in two different ways. ESV has a little lower than heavenly beings. New American Standard has God. Well, the Hebrew word there is Elohim. And it is usually translated as God. And this is the term that God uses of himself in Genesis 1, where we're told that uh, God made man in his image. Okay, that term God there is this third term, Elohim. So these are three names that God, these are the three most commonly used Hebrew words that are applied to God. And we see the first two here then in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. So Lord is the first Lord there with all caps is Yahweh. God's covenant-keeping name. He who causes things to be. This name was held in such high regard that it must not be invoked lightly. Must not be invoked in vain or in magical practices. Indeed, that's what God says in the Ten Commandments. And we ourselves must not fall into the common cultural practice of using God's name lightly in exclamations of amazement or anger or fear or expressions of false piety, or as a way to validate the truth of what we're saying. No, we must honor God's name. I'm not saying that we adopt the practice of Judaism in the intertestamental period during which they held the divine name to be so sacred that they would never say it, and they would switch it out with Adonai or Elohim. But I am saying that we never use God's name flippantly, we never use it irreverently, 
or thoughtlessly. He is Lord. We also see He is our Lord, our Adonai. I think the point here is is that there is to be a deferential submission to God. We are saying, when we say our Lord, we are saying you are God and I am not. There's a corporate recognition here that God is uniquely sovereign as opposed to all other gods. Now in David's day, Yahweh is God and none of the gods of the nations are. For example, when Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, is knocking on Jerusalem's door a few hundred years or so later than when David is penning this psalm. But Sennacherib sent word to Hezekiah, who was the king then in Jerusalem, and uh, he, told, he told Hezekiah, guess what, you're next. Yeah, I'm coming your way, and I'm going to conquer your city. And he says this, Sennacherib, Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord, Yahweh, should deliver the Jerusalem out of my hand? But God says to Sennacherib, in Isaiah thirty-seven twenty-three, Whom have you mocked and reviled? the Holy One of Israel. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, God killed 185,000 Assyrian troops and Sennacherib went home. Now, in New Testament times, whenever a Christian, became a, whenever a Christian gave public proclamation of his or her faith in Christ, they would say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was their confession. And by saying that, they were also saying, Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. In our day, Jesus is Lord. Government is not. My prestige, my power, my pleasure, my possessions, they are not. God is God. Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson the hard way. After seven years of grazing in the fields as an animal because he claimed to have built Babylon for the glory of his majesty on his own, he writes this in Daniel 4 at the end of the chapter. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we acknowledge, we reverently submit to God and we acknowledge him as our only sovereign king. That is his name. But we also consider his majesty here by the way that we describe him. Because we call out to him, the psalmist does, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word name here represents not only God, but also God's revelation of himself. When we use each other's names, we use them as references to a particular person. But God's name means more than simple self-representation. His name speaks of his willingness and his amazing condescension to reveal himself to humanity. Think of Moses at the burning bush when God said, tell them that I am has sent you. And later in Exodus 33, 
when Moses had asked God to show him his glory, God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he walks by, and God describes himself this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is how God reveals and explains himself. Thus, when David proclaims, how majestic is your name, he is saying, how amazing and marvelous and awesome are you in your person and in your revelation, in who you are and what you have revealed about yourself. No wonder that Isaiah had this response when he saw God in his vision in Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is his name. Then we see how majestic is your name. This word is used to describe God who is victorious in battle whose greatness and power are demonstrated by His dominion over creation, by His brilliant presence. And this amazing revelation of the name is manifested in all the earth. In this sense, God is greater than all created reality and is an authority over it and all other supernatural powers. So as we have considered here the main theme of the psalm, in both the opening and the closing refrain, we are struck by the first element of God's character which drives us to praise Him. And that is, He is majestic. His greatness and power are manifested in His name. He is Yahweh, our sovereign, and in the revelation of Himself. And this leads us to praise God for a second element of His character, that of His power. And we see this from the end of from the middle of verse 1 into verse 2. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So, you have set your glory above the heavens. This is praise to God manifested in His creation. Now, since God has set His glory above the heavens... He cannot be part of His creation. This dispels the notion of what's called pantheism. This idea that God is all and all is God. Indeed, God is apart from His creation. He created it. This appears to be an added emphasis as well to the fact that His greatness is seen in all the earth. Not only is your name great in all the earth, it is even greater in that it is set above the heavens. So God's absolute and sovereign power is manifested in His glory, which is greater than anything in the created earth or heavens. So, you have set your glory above the heavens, and you have established strength because of your foes. You have established strength. This is praise to God manifested in His condescension to weak and frail humanity. We see that condescension kind of indicated here when he says, out of the mouth of babes and infants. There's a contrast here between weak and frail humanity, and by the way, he's describing babes and infants as you and me, not just 
think not, if you're an adult, don't just think, well, he's just talking about babies. No, he's talking about humanity and describing all of us as babes and infants in comparison to his greatness. And yet, even as babes and infants, as foes of God, as the text even refers to, he's established strength because of your foes. God provides strength and refuge for his followers while bringing to impotence those who are opposed to the truth. He brings them to impotence because he says here, you have stilled the enemy and the avenger. The idea of still there in my translation is to bring to silence, to put them to silence. And I, want, I think we need to remember as we see this idea here that he has indeed... Uh, <clears throat> established his strength because of his foes. In establishing his strength, that God always wins. He establishes strength in putting down and stopping and bringing to impotence his enemies. You know, we can get discouraged in our world to the seeming victories of the anti-God forces that are raising their ugly heads in our state, in our country, in the world. As we think of persecuted Christians, as we think of people around the world, maybe even particularly as we think of what's happening in Israel, of those who are innocent, innocent people taken captive, murdered. A lot of injustice, it seems, in our world. But God always wins. God always brings evil forces down. This is one of the main reasons that the book of Revelation was written, why it's in our Bibles. To encourage saints that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. What does he say in Revelation 22:12 as Jesus is talking there at the end of, the, of that book? Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says a little bit later, surely I am coming soon. And we would join John in saying, amen, come, Lord Jesus. So how does this defeat of the foes take place that he describes here to still the enemy and the avenger? Well, it, is, it takes place through the powerful name that is uttered out of the mouth of babes and infants. Through the powerful name of God is how the defeat of his foes takes place. I think it would be good to consider three ways that God delights in using his name, in using his word to stop the enemies. Because we who are frail babes and infants must remember the power that we wield when we speak when speaking of the name and the word that he has given to us. One scholar named Wayne Grudem reminds us of this truth. If I can, there's a rather lengthy statement here, but I think it's very helpful for us to think about this concept. He says, Most of you have some influence in some sphere of non-Christian activity. Whether you are a parent and there are values curricula in your schools, whether you are a school board member, whether you are discussing something of ethical import with your neighbors or your co-workers, 
whether you are involved in ethics debates in your community or other venues, if we believe in the power and authority of God's Word, then shouldn't we quote it in these contexts? He goes on to question the idea that since non-believers don't believe the Bible, then we shouldn't quote it. And he states, but if we hide it from unbelievers, where will they ever hear it? When we fail to quote Scripture in public and private discussions about hundreds of questions, we leave our most powerful weapon at home. It's the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6.17. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. It breaks the rock in pieces, Jeremiah 23.29. And it shall not return to the Lord empty, but it shall accomplish that which He purposes, and shall succeed in the thing for which He sent it, Isaiah 55.11. So stewards of the Word of God, unleash it. Release its power to a lost and a dying world. We are weak, but it is from our mouths that God establishes strength. God also delights to work through things that appear to be weak and insufficient to confound the enemies and the foes of God. The name of Yahweh through human speech manifests the presence and the power of God. And Paul spoke of this reality in 1 Corinthians 1.27 when he said that God chose, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, from the world's perspective, of course, to shame the strong. God is not looking for smooth talkers or smart people or significant people or even the supernatural to do His work in this world. No, he uses babies and infants. He uses weak and foolish. People who are willing to be weak and foolish for him. We also see that God delights when we call out to him in prayer or in praise, acknowledging his majestic nature. So out of our mouths, in these ways, we can proclaim the glory of God's power in his name and his word. So we have seen God's power manifested in creation and in His domination of enemies through His powerful word uttered by His weak and frail followers. I'd like to take a quick note here with you as we look at the rest of this psalm and notice all of the times that we see these second person plural pronoun, second person singular pronouns, excuse me, showing the work of God and reminding us of who has all the power, who is the central focus of this psalm. We see in verse 1, you have set your glory. Verse 2, you have established strength. Verse 3, you have set in place your heavens. Verse 4, you are mindful of man. You care for the Son of Man. And so on. I'm not going to go through all nine in the text. But who is the powerful one of the psalm? David leaves us no question. God is. God is doing all these actions that are described in the psalm. And He is the one that we worship. So worship includes praise for God's majesty and praise for God's power. Now in verses 3 through 8, we come to the third element of God's character that prompts our worship, God's grace. God's grace. Now, how do we see God's grace as a significant element of His character? I think there are two aspects of grace, good for us to think about on the front end here. First, when the one who is giving the gift makes a significant sacrifice to help someone else. 
like in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. A second aspect of grace is when the recipient of the gift is completely and totally undeserving, like we see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And and this is actually that second aspect of grace that we're going to see shown to us here in this psalm. That idea here that... Um, humanity is insignificant and is completely undeserving of the role that God is going to give to us. So let's look at our insignificance first in the text before we see the amazing grace of God in giving us what He gives to us as humanity in the psalm. So first of all, let's consider our insignificance. We see this in verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? In contrast to God, the heavens are tiny. They're pushed and prodded into shape by the divine fingers. Now, you think that the universe is big? Well, God made it with his fingers. As vast as the night sky is, as vast as the universe with all of its galaxies is, God spoke it into existence. He says here, you have set it in place. So the heavens are tiny compared to God. But then where does that put you and me? What are we in comparison to God? God, with a tiny universe... And then there's us. We're tinier yet. We are the tiniest fragments in the universe, and it is inconceivable that we humans could have significance or a central position in that universe. But that's what's going to be amazing as we continue to see how amazing God has been in His grace to us. But how should we respond in light of the fact that we have this beautiful world around us? How should we respond when we see a beautiful sunset? When we see the moon and the stars? Have you noticed the fall colors like they're peaking this weekend right here? Away from the lights of the city? The view from the top of Pikes Peak or from the rim of the Grand Canyon? I don't think it should just be, wow, that's pretty cool. It's an amazing view. Our response should be praise to God in words, in prayer, in song, let's say you've just completed a canoe trip down the river or a bike ride along the creek or a hike on a mountain or a walk through the forest. In fact, we're going to sing a song at the end of the service this morning that's going to remind us of that. Do you end the day after enjoying these beauties of God's creation with a prayer of praise to God for making such a beautiful world to enjoy? We're going to sing. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, what's, a, what's our response? Oh, I, I think I better check my phone. Is that a response? No. It's how great 
thou art. See, we need something outside ourselves. We need special revelation. And this psalm is not concerned with presenting God's creation as a vehicle of revelation. Now, certainly he does that in Psalm 19, for example. Rather, nature evokes in us a sense of smallness that provokes the need for special revelation, for the name of God. The role that we have been given as human beings in this universe is not something which can be discerned from reflecting on nature or from a kind of natural philosophy. It is something which can only be known on the basis of special revelation which we hold in our hands. We can only know God because He has given us His truth in His Word. I think it's also important to note here that when we see the word man in the text, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you visit Him. These are terms that speak of humanity as merely mortals. These are people in general. We're not talking about males as opposed to females, but humans. Humans as frail and insignificant. So, the psalmist asks two questions then that describe two ways that God interacts with humanity in this vast universe. And these are amazing to think about. Verse 4, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? He remembers us. The psalmist is amazed that this majestic God thinks about him, thinks about you and me individually, and meets our needs. This vast God knows your name, and he meets your needs. That's amazing. And the Son of Man cares for Him. He cares for us. He visits us. He pays attention to us. This is an amazing truth. No matter how frail or insignificant people may seem, God intervenes in their lives to set in motion the plan that He has for them. Yes, the universe that God has made is vast, But God cares about you, and He thinks about you individually. This is an amazing truth, and it's getting us ready for what He's about to say in His response, in His graciousness to us. Now, while God could have said, puny man is nothing in the face of all the amazing animals and constellations and breathtaking mountains and oceans that I have made, but instead, God celebrates His creation of humanity. He remembers us. He looks after us and He enters into relationship with us. He makes us His special and favored friends by creating us in His image. Genesis 1.27 By knitting us together in our mother's womb such that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is why, by the way, (coughs) human lives are worth fighting for. Sadly, we live in a culture that protects vanishing species of birds, and gets exercised about mining and drilling practices while turning a blind eye to the murder of unborn children. For example, in 2020, 2,548 babies were aborted daily here in the United States. Now, besides abortion, our culture devalues human beings through human trafficking, euthanasia, sexual reassignment surgery, This is an outright societal rejection of God's concern for human beings that are made in His image. 
We should fight against such practices in as much as we are able, and we should pray for and support those on the front lines in the battles against them. So, we are insignificant, according to verses 3 and 4. Yet, God's kindness gives us, gives humanity, a significant role. And that is what verses 5 through 8 tell us. You have made Him, humanity, a little lower than God, or a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So we've seen our insignificance in comparison to the vastness of creation, but man's place in creation is lower only than God. He still has been given honor and glory as the main emphasis here in this section. And we see here God's gracious actions toward humanity with four verbs that you can see there in the text. You have made Him the lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion. And you have put all things under His feet. These are the main ideas here in this part of the text. Note that what gives value to human beings is not anything that humans have done for themselves. God is the one who is the actor here. God is the one who has done this for them. The key to our value is not in us, but it is in what God has conferred to us. I'm not valuable because of anything in me, and you are not valuable because of your looks or your smarts or your good work, your good works, your humor, your athletic ability. No, we are valuable because God created us and formed us. He redeemed us. First Peter reminds us, you were not redeemed with money, but with the precious blood of Christ. He called us. Second Timothy 1.9 called us not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. We see all of these creative and grace-filled acts of God in a verse like Isaiah 43.1. But now thus says the Lord, Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. See, we are valuable because God redeemed us and called us. Because He made us, He crowned us, He gave us dominion, and He placed us all things under us. This is the Lord's doing. It's amazing. Now, borrowing language from Genesis 1, God has, we are told here in this text, made us in His image and given us dominion over creation by placing all things under our feet. He has invested humanity with a dignity that is second only to His own. And He has made us rulers over this world that He has created. This is grace. Now, God made humanity. Now look quickly at these these four verbs here. He made humanity lower than God. Humanity is not divine. Yet we have been crowned with glory and honor and given dominion and had all things placed under us. Indeed, angels were not put over the creation Mankind was. This is why the translation 
of the Hebrew word Elohim here should be God. This is the most common way to translate it, and it is who God has said, I put you a little lower than me. I have crowned you, secondly, with glory and honor. He has delegated mastery of this creation to human beings. The phrase here, a little lower than God, likely alludes to Genesis 1.27, which tells us that God has created us in His image. He's not, we're not to, he didn't create animals, obviously, in His image. He didn't create angels in His image. He created humanity in His image. And this position of honor and glory has a purpose, as we see in verse 6. You have given Him dominion over creation. You have placed all things under His feet. So humanity's dominance extends over all created things, specifically living creatures, and He gives us a whole list of them here in the text. Now, the pagans deified animals and constellations, and the sun and the moon and the earth, but God put man over all of these things. They are not to be worshipped but ruled, and only God is to be worshipped. God reminded some pagans about this truth when he poured out those ten plagues on the Egyptians, most of which were intended to show that God controlled and dominated all the things that the Egyptians were worshipping. No, God is greater. Finally, we must notice here in this text that though this was God's original purpose in the creation, notice these are past tenses here, him, you've given him dominion, you put all things under his feet. Humanity has not fulfilled this mandate of ruling. In fact, we saw that in that text that was read for us earlier in Hebrews 2. So I want to encourage you to turn, keep a finger in Psalm 8 if you want, but go back to, go, let's go back to Hebrews 2. And in Hebrews 2, we see this statement in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is, to humanity, to man, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. By the way, have you noticed that humanity is not taking dominion over everything in the world? That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. But there's a contrast. But... We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Now, you'll notice here that the text that the writer of Hebrews is quoting from is Psalm 8, where we've just been. And he's making a point here about Jesus. He's bringing the truth of Psalm 8 to bear on who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. And... He's arguing here, how, did, how indeed did the writer of Hebrews come to take this psalm, Psalm 8, about the grace of God and placing humanity over creation, and then apply that truth to Jesus and to his sacrificial death for us? Well, he did it this way. God decreed that the first Adam rule over all his creation. He does that in Genesis 1. Psalm 8 acknowledges the grace of God in giving this prerogative to humanity generally, as we've seen in verses 5 through 8 of our psalm. What appeared to the writer of Hebrews as unfulfilled in 2.8, because we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, 
was fulfilled by Jesus in His death, resurrection, and ascension. By taking His seat at the right hand of God, Jesus has inaugurated the new age. And one day soon, His rule will be consummated as He finally puts everything under His feet. In fact, Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, when he says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. Which again is another allusion to Psalm 8 there. So please do not miss this point. As we have considered our need to worship God because He's majestic and powerful and gracious, we see these attributes of God most clearly and fully in Jesus Christ, the last Adam. While the first Adam in Genesis 1 and mankind generally in Psalm 8, 5 through 8, were given dominion over creation, they did not succeed because only one man, Jesus Christ, could finally and completely have dominion over creation, over sin, and over death when he died on the cross and when he rose again. And he was now ascended to the right hand of the Father. But if you do not know Jesus as your personal deliverer from sin and death, you cannot come and adore this only true God. If you have not accepted Him as your only Savior from sin, you cannot worship Him. You can't sing the song we're about to sing. You cannot truly say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. So come to Him today. And I bid all of us, come and worship Him because He is majestic, He is powerful, and He is full of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we give You praise that You are majestic, that You are powerful, and that You are full of grace. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.